9 o'clock. It's good to see everybody. How are you guys this morning? Hey, I just want to take one second to reiterate. I got the privilege this week of being at Surge and getting to teach in large group. And I'm just telling you, if you didn't get a chance to volunteer this year or your kid didn't get a chance to go, do not miss it next year. It is one of the coolest weeks that we have as far as what we're doing with your kids up in kids' ministry. So make sure next year that you guys get out. But this morning, we're jumping back into our If Only series. We're just going to keep right on continuing in the, the If Only series and the happiness and the pursuit of happiness that we've been talking about for the past couple weeks. So if you guys want to open your Bible or your phone or your app to Matthew 5, we're going to be hanging out there most of the day today. And we're going to be in verse 6. And I'm just going to read it to set up the morning and to get started off. Matthew 5, verse 6 says this, Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So, for the past couple of months, especially in my life, I've been, my wife and I have been talking a lot about just some goals that we have and things that we want to accomplish together. And one of those things that we both have been talking about is just health. Like, we both want to make sure that we stay healthy, that we're here, we're around for our kids, we're able to be there for each other. And so we've been really trying to learn a lot about how to live a healthy lifestyle, not just, just eat good sometimes, but how to eat better, how to be more active, how to do all that kind of stuff. And so as we've done that, I've been studying those things, and I learned something really interesting. And, and it's something that as I learned it, I didn't really know, but as I started to prepare and study for this message, God brought it back to my mind, and, and it really kind of brought things to life for me. See, I'm a real visual learner. I like to have examples of things. I I like to have things I can hold on to and touch so that I can learn what God's trying to teach me. And so one of the things that I've learned about nutrition is that when we get hungry, we get hungry for all kinds of reasons. When we get hungry and thirsty, a lot of them, the, the people that study these things out and they're way smarter than us, they've decided that a lot of reasons are psychological now. Because of our culture and because of the things that we've grown up around, a lot of the reasons that we get hungry are a lot, have a lot to do with just our thoughts and and the things that we are trained to think. But one of the basic reasons, if you get down to a biology of why we get hungry, it's because our body needs nutrition. Our body needs nutrients and vitamins and all that stuff to function. There's a lot of things that happen every second that we're alive, that we're moving around, that require energy, that require our body to do a lot of things that we don't think about. And so our body needs nutrition in order for that to happen, in order for that to happen properly. And so the reason we get hungry, when we get really hungry, it's because our body's trying to tell us that it needs something to keep doing what we're asking it to do. And so as I've studied that, there's a lot of things. Then you start to learn about what is good nutrition and what is not. But how many of you guys, and I know this is true for me, how many of you have gone to either a buffet or a family-like meal, whether it's Thanksgiving or a birthday or something, where you knew food was going to be all over the place and you were going ready to just attack it. I know that I've gone, okay, there's some people I don't feel as bad. But you've gone to a buffet and you're like, I'm going to make sure I hit every single continent before I leave this place. Or you go to a family dinner and you're like, I need sideboards on my plate to make sure I keep everything on it to get back to the table. Like you go and you're just ready to eat. And you eat and you eat and you eat and then it's time for cake and you eat that too. And then you sit down and you wear a longer shirt so you can unbutton your pants and nobody will know. <laughs> and you sit down and you're like, I'm never going to eat again. Like, you sit down and you're like, I'm good for the next week. I can just hibernate like a bear now. I don't have to eat again for at least a good week. But how many of you, then about an hour or two later, this happens. And now that I'm married, this happens to me. My wife is like, what are you doing in the kitchen? Nothing. I'm just, I was getting uh, a spoon, a spoon for something. 
And she asked me why I'm eating again. An hour ago, two hours ago, I've just eaten more than I could think about ever eating in one sitting. And I get up because I'm hungry again. How many of you guys have had that happen? You eat more than you could think, but you're hungry not that long after. See, here's why that happens. We can eat and eat and eat and fill ourselves with things, but if it doesn't have nutrition, if it's not something that will last, that our body can use, we're going to find ourselves being hungry not long after that. Because the things that we're eating and the things that we're filling with ourselves, they don't last. They're not of substance. They're not something that our body can use to do what it needs to do. And so it's the same thing for us spiritually. Spiritually, we suffer from that disease all the time, and we don't think about it. You know, a couple weeks ago, we had you guys fill out note cards of things that would make you happy. If You know, we had the little phrase, I would be happy if... And we filled out things, and there were some incredible things on here. My marriage was better, or my family would come to know Christ, or we were more involved at church. But, and we had a lot of things that were repeated. If I had more money, if I was more successful, if I got that promotion, if I could get into the college I wanted, all those things. And, and none of those things are wrong. So I, I'm going to preface this by saying we're not about to get into a bait of what's good and what you should or shouldn't desire. I don't think that there's anything that we have written up here that's wrong in and of itself. But what we're going to find out this morning is that when we fill ourselves with these things, when this becomes the thing that we pursue and that we put our focus on, when money or success or pleasure becomes the thing that we think will fill us and satisfy us, we're going to come to find out that we're going to fill ourselves with those things and we're going to be really, really hungry on the other side of it. We're going to get the money that we think we need. We're going to work hard and we're going to take out a second job and we're going to get pile up the money and get into savings and think that we've got what we need and we're going to get all that money and we're going to set it in front of us and then we're going to go, it's not enough. I'm still hungry. Or we're going to get the promotion and then the next promotion and then we're going to move and they're going to, the business is going to move us because we got promoted again and we're going to find success in many different areas and we're going to be hungry. And like I said, there's nothing wrong with gaining money, with working hard and earning money so that you can provide for yourself, for your family. There's nothing wrong with wanting to succeed because God can use people in positions of authority like that to show his love and his power and his grace and all those things to the people below them. So there's nothing wrong with that. But the problem is when that becomes our hunger, when that becomes what we thirst for, when that becomes what we think will satisfy us. Because those things, there is nothing here on this earth, no matter how good it is, that will satisfy us like God will. And that's what that verse is talking about. I want to, before we go any further, I want to help define the two words we're talking about, hunger and thirst. Because here's the thing, not only is God's word 100% true, not only is God's word 100% right, but God chooses every word very carefully. And sometimes we read the word of God and we read the words that he chooses and we put in our own definition for him. But it would really help us out and it's really helped me out to stop and to just find out what God's actually trying to say because a lot of times I've found my definition for something and God's definition for something in his word is way different. Here's the thing, that word hunger, when we look at the word in the Greek, it is from the Greek word pay now. That's how you say it in Greek, I think. But... It's from this Greek word pay now, and what it means is a hunger that comes from lacking food for some time. It's not a word that says, oh, I'm hungry for a pizza, or I could go for some Mexican. It's not like a passing craving or a, yeah, I could eat now if if anybody else wanted to. 
This word comes from a place of somebody that has not had food for some time, and they are desperately hungry. The other word that we find in this verse is thirst, and it comes from the Greek word deep south. And it is the same thing. It is a thirst that comes from lacking water for some time. It's not a thirst of, oh, I could go for that, or I could use a lemonade or a sweet tea. It's a hot day out. It is, I am so thirsty. I'm parched. I haven't had anything to drink. But if we go deeper than that, if you take those two words together in the context of this verse, there's even a deeper meaning because we obviously can't physically eat and drink righteousness. So God's using these words to explain to us that the hunger and thirst that he's talking about is a deep, deep desire. It's not just a want or a passing craving. It is a need. Because we need food to live. We need water to live. So when we look at this word hunger and thirst, when it says hunger and thirst for righteousness, it's not I want you to because you would want it too. It's you need to hunger and thirst for righteousness because we all need to eat and we all need to have our thirst quenched. So we've got to understand that to keep moving on because we've got to understand what God's trying to tell us. God is trying to help us address a deep need that we all suffer from. Because here's the thing, if we were all honest with ourselves in this room right now, we all hunger and thirst all the time. We wrote it all over these letters. We wrote it on those note cards a couple weeks ago. We're all hungry and thirsty for something. We're all constantly yearning for something. And that yearning and that desire, that hunger and that thirst, it's something God put inside of us. The problem is we've directed our attention to something that will never satisfy us. We've directed our attention to something that will maybe satisfy a craving, maybe fill us for a little bit of time, but just like when we go to the buffet or go to that family party or gathering, we'll eat and eat and eat from whatever it is, and we'll sit down, and not long after, we'll find ourselves still feeling empty, not feeling totally satisfied like we want and we desire, not being satisfied like we need. So this idea of hungering and thirsting for righteousness, I really believe that there's a big problem and there's a really easy solution to it. Here's what I think the problem is. And, and it, my students have heard me say this. It's something that God's been pressing on my heart lately just in a lot of areas. I think one of our big problems with hungering and thirsting for things that will not completely satisfy us is that we're really nearsighted. How many of you in this room are actually nearsighted? Okay, there's some people in here, and if you don't know what that is, you can only see, and, and it depends on who you are, but you can only see things that are pretty close up to you. If you don't have your glasses or your contacts or your prescription, and you can only see the things that are really close. Anything that's out in the distance, you might as well just forget it. And so we spiritually are very nearsighted. We'll find something, we'll look at something that we can taste, touch, and feel, some type of success, something, and we'll get it in front of us, and that's all we'll see. And it's the easy example, but money. We'll take money and we'll put it right in front of our face and it's what consumes us and it's all we begin to see and it's all we begin to filter our thoughts and our ideas and our decisions around. How much money we want to have to be able to do the things we want to do to be where we want to be. And that becomes the thing that drives us. It becomes what we're hungry for. It becomes what we heap up to ourselves. It becomes the thing that we think will satisfy us. And we get more and more and we buy more and more with it and then every time 
we get to the end of that cycle, we go, I'm still hungry. We buy the thing or we get the amount that we think we need and we find ourselves hungry. You see, but we're nearsighted. We don't have any ability to see out beyond that, so we continue the cycle because it's the thing that surrounds our vision. It's the only thing we can see. We don't have the vision to see far enough in the future to understand that money is temporary. Success is temporary. Pleasure is temporary. Nothing on this planet, good, bad, or indifferent, is going to satisfy us. Nothing on this planet is going to last outside of what God has for us. And so the thing that we have to do is we have to first address the problem. But here's the really easy fix. If you want to know the really easy solution to our hunger and our thirst, to fixing it on the one thing that will satisfy, it's this. We need to meet God. If you want your hunger and you want your thirst to be satisfied, all you need to do is meet God. Not on just a surface level, not just I've heard the name Jesus before, I've heard the name God before, or I go to church and I listen sometimes. No, we need to really meet God. And it's a beautiful thing because when, when we look at these Beatitudes, when we look at the first few that we've looked at in the past couple weeks, they're all kind of passive things. We're supposed to be meek, we're supposed to mourn over our sin. They're passive things, they're things that all we have to do is bring ourselves to God on those issues and he'll take care of the rest. And as we're going to see today and over the next couple weeks, the things that we talk about seem a little bit more active. They're more directive. They're more action steps. But even those things, God takes care of. See, the danger with these Beatitudes, the danger in a series like this is we can come away with this thinking that it's another list of things that we've got to do. We can come away from this series thinking, okay, I've got to make sure I mourn, and I've got to make sure I'm meek, and I've got to make sure I hunger. Like, we come away from this series with another list of rules to follow. That's not what God's trying to do here. God's trying to explain to us our desperate, weak, un- or unable to help ourselves state so that we can rely on him. All the things that God is asking us to hear, all the attitudes he's asking us to adapt, he has to do for us. This idea of hungering and thirsting for God, if we will just meet God, there is no way you cannot hunger and thirst for him. There is no way that we cannot hunger and thirst desperately for God and and continue to want more and more and to be only more and more satisfied if we'll just meet him. And I can prove it. If you guys look back in the Old Testament, I'm going to tell you guys about a guy named Moses. And I'll give you the quick version. A lot of you maybe know who Moses is or not. Moses was born in a time he was a Hebrew. He was born in a time when the Hebrews were slaves to the Egyptians. At that time, there was a lot of Hebrew babies being born, and so Pharaoh decided they could be overrun, so he decided to kill all the babies below the age of two, all the males. So Moses' mother hides him in a basket, sends him down the river. He's found by Pharaoh's daughter. She takes him as her own. She raises him. He's raised up in the palace of Pharaoh. As he gets older, he begins to realize that he is a Hebrew. That is his people that are being oppressed and treated as slaves. One day, he sees an Egyptian taskmaster mistreating one of his Hebrew brothers. He goes out and he kills the taskmaster, and then he runs away. And for 40 years, he spends, or he spends his time on the backside of a desert in a mountain with his father-in-law. He gets married, and he tends to his father-in-law's sheep. But here's what happened. Moses 
God comes to Moses after 40 years in a burning bush, and he tells Moses, I want you to go and set my people free. And as soon as he does, Moses freaks out. Moses doubts it. Moses isn't sure why God would ask him. Moses is like, not me. You can find somebody else. God reassures him that he will be with him. He reassures him that I am God. You can go in that power. So Moses goes. Reluctantly, doubtfully, scared at first, Moses goes. And God shows Moses his power time and time again. Through the ten plagues, through the parting of the Red Sea, through everything he did, God showed his power. So on the other side, Moses brings the Israelite people out of captivity. And there's a story in Exodus where Moses goes up on a mountain and he's actually in the presence of God. And he's communing with God and God is helping him to write the Ten Commandments. God is writing them and Moses is just taking notes. So as Moses is up there experiencing the presence and the power of God, the people down below are getting restless And they're forgetting what God has done. And so they make this idol and they begin to worship it. And when Moses comes down from that experience with God, he comes back to that. He comes back to this story and he comes back to these people that are totally forgotten about the God that just saved them. And they're worshiping something else. They're trying to find satisfaction, fulfillment in something else. And Moses has just experienced God. And so right on the other side of that, Moses goes out to this tent, the tent of meeting, and he And he sits down in this tent by himself, and God himself comes in. It says they speak as face-to-face, as friends would. His presence comes into the tent. And Moses says this in Exodus 33, 15. This is how I can tell you that when you get a taste of who God is, when you actually meet God, you can't help but hunger and thirst for him. See, God had promised the Israelite people that he would send them to the promised land. It would be flowing with milk and honey. It would be everything that they would ever need on the other side of their captivity. And so God, after seeing the golden calf, after seeing what his people had done, it displeased him so much, it angered him so much, that he said, because he's faithful, even more faithless, that he would send the people to the promised land, but that he would not go. He told Moses, you take them, you go to what I promised you, but I'm not coming. And Moses is in the tent in Exodus 33, 15. He says this, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. Before Moses lied, everything that God had promised him, all he had to do was take the people and go to the promised land. They would have all the food they need. They'd have all the protection they need, the shelter they need. The land would be fertile. They would be able to grow. They would be in charge of themselves. They'd be out of slavery. It seemed like everything that anybody could want, and Moses would have been the hero for getting them there. But because he had tasted, because he had hungered and thirsted for God, because he had gotten just a taste of who God was on that mountain, he said, I'm not going unless you go. Don't send me unless you're coming, because Moses realized that nothing the promised land could hold would compare to what he had tasted and what he had been able to drink from God. Not one thing in the promised land could even come close to comparing to the taste of God's goodness, to the righteousness of God. Moses understood that he did not want to move unless that is what he could be in the presence of and eat from and drink from every day. Exodus, and so God agrees. In Exodus 33, if you keep reading, God agrees to go with them because of Moses' plea. And in Exodus 33, 18, Moses said, please show me your glory. Now Moses had just spent 40 days on a mountain with God, and then he had just been in the tent of meeting with the presence of God, 
and he's asking for more. See, that's the thing with this hunger and this thirst for God. As it satisfies us, it just creates more of a taste for God. As we hunger and we thirst for God, it's the only thing that will completely satisfy us. But as it satisfies us, it becomes the only thing we want to taste and drink from. Moses didn't want the promised land. He didn't want the milk and honey. He didn't want any of that. He wanted to continue to get to taste and see God's righteousness. That's the beautiful thing. Moses didn't do anything. He didn't have to force himself to hunger and thirst for God. He didn't have to wake up and tell himself he had to hunger and thirst for God. He saw who God was. He was part of his glory. He was in his presence, and he said, I don't want anything else. Give me more. There's another man in the Bible. His name's David. Now, David was a small shepherd boy. He spent a lot of his time out in the field with sheep. One day, and, and out in that field, he experienced God in incredible ways. David would write songs to God. He would commune with God out in that field. God gave him power at one time to kill a bear and a lion with his bare hands. God, David experienced God in incredible ways out in that field as he tended to those sheep. Well, one day, David, his dad calls him from the field. He gives him a bunch of food because his brothers were off at battle for the Israelites. The Israelites were in a battle with the Philistines. And he sends his David, and he says, go feed your brothers. So David goes, and as he gets there, he comes upon this scene where a Goliath, this giant from Philist the Philistines, was calling out curses and mocking the God of Israel. He was saying, who will come fight me? Who will come face me? And he was mocking God, and he was mocking God's people, and David wouldn't stand for it because David had tasted, and he had been quenched by God's righteousness, and so he wouldn't stand for it. So he goes, they try to give him armor, he says no, he takes a sling and five stones, and if you know the story, he goes and he kills Goliath. And from that point, God makes David a king. It's a long story, but God anoints David, and he makes him the next king of Israel. David had everything he needed. He was called a man after God's own heart. He would commune with God all the time. God had made him a great warrior of great respect he was the king of Israel. He had no want for anything. But one night, he looks out over his roof onto another roof, and he sees a woman bathing. He sees her. He decides he wants her. He brings her. He gets her pregnant. He kills her husband to try and cover it all up. And David, who had tasted and seen God's righteousness so many times, thought something else would satisfy this is the guy, David, if you read in Psalm 63, 1, he says, Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. As in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. In Psalm 17, 15, he says, As for me, I shall behold your face in righteousness. When I awake, I shall be satisfied with your likeness. David had tasted and experienced God in ways that many people hadn't. He communed, he fellowshiped, he desired God. He said you were, God was sweet to his taste. If you go to Psalm 119, you can look at places where, God, or where David talks about how the word of God was like honey to his lips. Now, we're not talking about the whole word of God. We're talking about like the first five books. 
talking about Leviticus. We're talking about the rules. Even that, because it came from God, was sweet to David's taste. He hungered and thirsted for God's righteousness. And David pursued something else. He went after Bathsheba, even though he knew all of this. And if you come on to the other side of that and you read some of the things David wrote, he begs and pleads in repentance for God not to leave him. David understood in that moment that there was nothing else on this planet that would satisfy him like God. He had known the satisfaction of God. He had known what it was like to taste and drink from God's righteousness. And on the other side of what he did with Bathsheba, he begs and pleads for the rest of his life for God not to remove his presence, for God not to hide his face, for God not to leave him. Because David understood that nothing else would satisfy him like God. There's one more guy in the New Testament. His name was Paul. Now here's the thing. Paul, he was considered a Jew of Jews. He was considered a Pharisee of Pharisees, a religious zealot. Paul did everything right. He had the status that everybody wanted back in that time. He kept the law. He, knew the old, he had memorized all the books. He had done everything that a Pharisee of Pharisees would do. Paul, after Jesus came and the Christian movement began, Paul was the one that would organize and go out and deliver the execution orders for Christians. And he believed he was completely right in doing it. There was nothing in the law back then that Paul didn't observe. He says, I kept it to a T. One day, Paul is riding to deliver another order. God's glory comes. It knocks him off his horse. It blinds him. God sends him in another direction. And from that point, Paul's life changes drastically. Paul goes from being a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, to being shipwrecked, to being beaten, to being imprisoned, to being stoned, to being hated and run out of many places, to having to run and hide for his life at times. Paul's life following Christ was absolutely, starkly different from what it was before. But here's what Paul says in Philippians 3.8. Indeed, I count everything lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered loss. Of all things I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, Paul's life before, he kept what he believed to be every religious right. He kept the law, he, kept all, he memorized the books, he did everything that he thought was right. He did all the religious checklists. He did all the things that we think we needed to do. He went to church, and he prayed, and he read his Bible, and he put money in the tithe bucket, and he served, and he did everything right. But all of his religious activity, all of his religious trying was totally void of God. In fact, it was absolutely against God at the time. And so when Paul meets God and God sends him in a new direction and he tastes and he drinks from and he sees the righteous God, he tastes of the righteousness of God. Paul looks back at his life and he looks at all the religious effort that he put in and he says, I count it all lost. Everything I had was worthless compared to gaining Christ to knowing my Savior. Paul realized that being religious and doing the right things and being a good person and all that stuff that got him to the status and got him to the praise that he would receive as a Pharisee of Pharisee, that got him to where he thought he wanted to be, 
It was all absolutely worthless compared to knowing Christ. Paul was willing to suffer everything he suffered for the rest of his life, being nearly blind, being shipwrecked, beaten, exiled, imprisoned. And he counted it a joy. He counted it a privilege because in that, he got to know God. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness and hungering and thirsting for God, it doesn't always look pretty. Just because we leave here and we say, well, I want to hunger and thirst for God. If we begin to taste and see what God has and we begin to hunger and thirst for Him, it doesn't mean that these things are going to be fulfilled now. Paul's life was drastically different after that. But Paul would have had it no other way because he got to taste and drink from God. If we want to hunger and thirst for righteousness the way God calls us to, to do here... All we have to do is meet him. Because once we meet God, once we taste just a little bit of who he is, we will never be satisfied with anything else. Even if we temporarily lose our focus as David did, we'll come to realize that nothing satisfies like God does. All we have to do is meet him, and we meet him here. We go to God's word, and we read of this God that loves us. We read of a God that in the beginning when Adam and Eve fell, in the beginning when Adam and Eve sinned against God, he had every right to erase them from existence, and he didn't because he loves us. We read of a God that sent his perfect holy son to die for us. We read of a God that time and time again used flawed men to carry out his plans. He used the weak. He came, and he healed, and he saved the sick. We meet a God that loves us with a love that we'll never understand. And when we taste of that, when we drink of that righteousness, we will always be satisfied. The only dissatisfaction that we will find on the other side of that is trying to go back to anything else. We will be completely dissatisfied after that point with anything that is not God's righteousness. You guys can bow your head. Man, God loves us so much. His righteousness is so good. It tastes so sweet. I don't want us to leave here today from this service thinking that we've got to try or do or achieve. If we want to find the happiness God has for us, if we want to be blessed like he says, we just need to meet God. If you're somebody in this room that wants to talk about that, we're going to sing one more song together. And then there's going to be some people at the front of the room that would love to talk to you about that, would love to pray with you. But God, you are good. Thank you so much for loving us. God, thank you so much for sending your son to die for us. God, thank you so much for being a God that when we taste of you, when we drink of you, we are nothing but satisfied. God, we love you. God, help us all to leave here knowing you more so that we can taste and see of a God that's so good. It's in your name we pray, amen.